For years, my grandmother would take me to Hallmark during the Christmas season to pick out a present for my mom. It became a tradition. We would pick out something small and meaningful, usually something cherished to sit on a shelf in the curio cabinet in our house. Maybe a little glass bird or those precious moments figurines signifying something special about a mother and son relationship. Looking back, I don't really know she needed more every year because when do we really have enough little figurines around the house? But I do remember that she loved them. I was somewhere around the age of 12 when these willow tree figurines became popular. You may know them. You may have some of them in your homes. They're little figurative sculptures handcrafted by a local Kansas City artist named Susan Lordy. Each sculpture, imagined in her mind and written down with her hand, represents something about the human nature, something about love, about hope, about inspiration. These expressionless faces tell a story with just a tilt of a head or the position of a hand or embracing of a family with kids. My mother quickly fell in love with them, which as a young kid wondering what to get her every year was perfect because there could be lots in the collection and many years of gifts to come. It became a tradition of buying them and so did the unboxing and setting them up every year for Christmas because eventually the willow tree collection came into the holiday household decorations with a new line of the nativity scene. It began with Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus. We added some sheep some oxen, the wise men, the stars, the shepherds, a manger for the family to lay in. Every year you could add something more to the story. The tradition came not just by adding a new piece, but also unboxing them and setting them up on the living room table. I don't think about it much at the time then, but now looking back, it felt so much like a little ritual that we do every year at Christmas time during the Christmas season setting up the nativity scene in our own ways, in our churches or in our homes, an old, fun, an old unfolding story of Jesus' birth and all the characters and staging just right as we uncover the dust on each one so they could tell their own story. But Christmas is not really over, is it? In fact, it's only the beginning in the life of the church and in the liturgy. The houses may be back in order from entertaining families and friends, the leftovers of Christmas feasts are stowed away in the fridge to be made into delicious lunchtime sandwiches. The space beneath the tree is bare. The presents have all been unwrapped. Soon we'll see the lights that were strung to shine light into the world be taken down and the decorations we put away until next year. Our families are traveling back to their homes filled with myriad of memories of Christmas now past season of Christmas and our culture may be winding down, but for us as people of the church, the Christmas story is only beginning. The gospel writers still have so much more to say about the events that unfolded that night. After we sing the sweet hymn of Away and the Manger, so now on this first Sunday of Christmas, we begin to embark on the story of what's next, what now? What about a time away from the manger? The next days of weeks in Christmas will take us into the world that awaits Mary and Joseph and their new family, and it's nothing any of us would ever want to imagine for our loved ones. This is no hallmark story that we rewatch every year with good feelings and tidings and joy. No, this is more like a documentary on Netflix that stirs us deep in our souls, reminding us of the reality of the world that happens. 
the writer of Matthew takes a dramatic turn away from the glory days of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And in just a few short chapters, we go from the dreams of angels announcing the birth of Jesus to the dreams of angels warning of imminent danger and violence. Because now, there are no more visitors, no sheltering barn, no cuddly-looking sheep lying next to Jesus. There are no friendly oxen chewing away at the glass that lays around. It is only Mary and Joseph, with gleaming eyes of their newborn baby swaddled up in a blanket, and then in behind the scenes, the glaring eyes of a tyrant hell-bound on making sure that nothing, nothing dismantles his power and authority over the land. I've never had a dream in the middle of the night to save my family. I can suspect that many of us haven't, though it would be nice if that would happen if the time came. For two people, Christian and Andrea knew it was time. It was time to leave Guatemala. Just days after attending the funeral of a dear friend who refused to join the local gangs, the 21-year-old and the 22-year-old decided it was time to flee to keep their two-year-old daughter, Valerie, and their one-year-old son, Diego, safe. The local gangs were now threatening their own family. There was no choice in a country complicit with keeping violent gangs in power and not protecting the innocent. So they traveled through Mexico. After a long and couple exhausting weeks, they finally arrived in Tecate, a border zone just on the edge of the United States and Mexico. And there they pleaded and asked for asylum, and they were refused. They were told instead to go instead to a new place, to Tijuana, to put their names on the list, and then to sit, and to wait, and to hope for the best, and to hope for news that home would be safe. Andrew recalls one day in particular, as they walked the streets of Tijuana, that Valeria, the two-year-old daughter, was on the sidewalk drinking the last milk bottle. Both of her kids were hungry and crying, and she says all I wanted to do was cry as well with them. Four months later, they finally got their appointment with the Customs and Border Control, and they were taken to a detention center that now many migrants call the icebox. Because there, when children and women and mothers and families get cold, they cry and they scream. And when the detention center patrol people hear this, they turn the temperature down even more, making it so uncomfortable. No hope, no peace. After three days of agony, they were told that they had to eventually remain in Mexico. No sign of any asylum, no sign of safety and comfort for their family. They were told to just give up, just stay in Mexico, in a town not welcoming of any strangers, no room for traveling families, no jobs to do, just the desperate need to keep their family alive. I wonder if in those early days, did Christian and Andrea ever feel some kind of dream about what was next? Did they feel a warning that home was no longer safe, that they needed to flee and protect their family, only to have their hope for safety and security continually uprooted their future today is still unknown. Returning to Guatemala could only further put their families and lives in dangers. And so they wait with an ounce of hope. It wasn't, it wasn't just a dream that Joseph had that night. It was a nightmare. 
Joseph, wake up. You must go take your family and flee to Egypt. There is danger coming, and you must leave now. Go. You can imagine Joseph rubbing his eyes and sitting up in a state of fear and confusion, trying to figure out just what is going on. He wakes up Mary. They grab their baby, stuff all their belongings together, and walk quickly through the gate to the main road, and they get out of town as fast as possible. Their hearts wrench every time they see a soldier. They hold their baby close, trying to conceal any cries or stirs to not give away their escape to a foreign land. And then Herod realizes his own wise men, his trusted comrades who he sent out to go find this baby have tricked him and lied to him. And he will take no chances, no chances that the Christ child would fulfill any prophecies that have been spoken in the land of Israel. So Herod does what we know too many insecure and paranoid political leaders do. He instructs an army to commit mass murder, even of his own people. No child would be spared for the life of one child. A leader with unchecked power we know will do anything to save face in a time when his own power and authority may be questioned. Herod was no stranger to violence, no stranger to eliminating his enemies. No stranger to do anything to keep the peace in the land. So Mary and Joseph cross borders into a land once known all too well by their ancestors, an unexpected place of welcome and security for their new family in Egypt. And there they wait. And Jesus grows up a little bit and takes his first steps and learns his first words. And Joseph receives another dream. And this time it is a dream. The nightmare is over. Herod, the one after their little baby, is now dead, and the threat is over. And what a relief. I can sense that this time is a little different for the Holy Family. Perhaps they wake up a little later in the day, fully rested, taking their time to gather their things, helping the little one put on their shoes and set out for the journey ahead. And this time, this time the journey is home, finally. But no. While they're on the road to Israel, Joseph hears the news. The headlines make their way through the streets. The Roman emperor honored Herod's wishes by making his son ruler of Judea. And his son is just as rotten as an apple from a Herodian bad apple tree than you can ever imagine. Even worse than what Herod did, his son, Archaeus, was going through with unchecked power, still killing and searching for that baby throughout the land. And so plans disrupted again. Home is still not safe. There will be no return to a neighborhood once remembered. So they turn instead and hand to the, to the land of Galilee, a little town called Nazareth, a place where no one would expect there for to be Jesus, the Christ, to be raised and to come. Francisco Cantu is a United States citizen who joined the border control after spending years in college studying the reality of politics and violence along the line drawn in the sand that divides the border between the United States and Mexico. As the child of a park ranger and a grandson of a Mexican immigrant, he grew up in the Southwest with a deep love and appreciation for nature and a deep compassion for his neighbors. In his latest book, The Line Becomes a River, he retells the hallowing stories of being posted in remote regions, 
crisscrossed through Mexico and the United States by drug routes and smuggling corridors. And he recalls the endless occurrence of hauling those dead that they found migrating through the desert to the morgue and to the detention center that those they found alive. For he knew that violence on our border wreaks havoc on both sides. Francisco does what many of us feel uncomfortable doing, taking what we know intellectually about the way that the world works and leaving our comfort places to earnestly decide and discern this time who is the bad guys on the border control and who are just the innocent families trapped between a line, seeking refuge and peace. He even begins to wonder himself, what dreams are those of crossing the border dreaming? What do they hope for in the morning? What does a new life look for them? Is he what he is doing really helping? Is what he's doing making matters worse? One night after dark, he recalls this story. Their scope truck spotted a group of 20 making their way through the desert. They were moving slowly with women and children, and the operator guided Francisco and his team by locating their signs, toe digs, kicked over rocks, anything that would tell that human life had been there. And then they split up and combed the hillside. Eventually, they lost their tracks. He writes, I looked desperately for a sign. I thought of the deadly expanse that stretched between here and the nearest highway, the nearest place that the group may stop for aid. On the walk back to our vehicle, I became furious. There were supposed to be 20 of them, and they were supposed to be slow, but I couldn't catch up. I couldn't stay on the sign. I couldn't even get close enough to hear them in the distance. Entire families invisible and unheard and I was powerless to help them, powerless to keep them from straying through the night. We have to wonder in today's world too, that Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus had to cross a border into a strange land with unfamiliarity all around them. And what if they were coming to seek refuge here? What would we do? A seminary professor of mine once wrote, if Joseph had received the dream to leave his endangered village and to take refuge in a foreign country with his family in the circumstances similar to our own today, we would have to admit that he would likely have been turned back to the border, told to wait it out, to hope for the best, that there was no room for them in the country that lies ahead. There's no promise that the Christmas season is always full of joy and celebration, but there is hope that it is. We know too much about the realities of our families, of our world. Perhaps the holidays come with the painful reminders of loss and hurt. Perhaps they are for some a gruesome reminder that too many have plenty when too many others barely have enough. The story in Matthew tells us that the reality that Jesus was born into a world with problems problems that we have to sort out. But what Matthew does well, so well, for the first readers of this gospel and for us today is remind us that we can share dreams of God's repeated promises through the times. That in the end, the world is full of light and hope and refuge and that we, the church, are the ones to keep the flame going. In the surprising and disorienting way that God's grace often comes about, 
safety and well-being come to the Holy Family, not in any familiar, comfortable setting, but an encounter with the other who receives them with open arms, a land of people who share a dream for their future in times that seem the most dark. Sometime after Christmas Day, the willow tree nativity scene was all packed away. And it seemed to come so quickly after the scene was set and the characters were all in place. It was a story that sat on a table for weeks, but the story wasn't really over. I wonder now, looking back about putting them back in their boxes one by one, taking time to return the shepherds to the fields, the wise men to their distant homes, pack up the sheep and the auction to be tended in another farm, the stars tucked back away where they are no longer seen, Mary, Joseph, and baby Jesus removed from the manger, and then what can we do with them? It seems too soon to put Mary and Joseph and baby away just quite yet because their story really is only beginning. Maybe perhaps we can leave the family out and move them to the windowsill to look out into the world and we can wonder what dreams we would have for the family, what dreams we have for the world outside of our own mangers. <laughs>